Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. If you remember from episode four, we told you about the 2009 National Academy of Sciences report. In it, nearly every forensic science was called into question, and various reforms were recommended. Now we want to find out what kind of progress has been made in the last 10 years and just how reliable modern-day forensics truly are. So the 2009 National Academy of Sciences report said that the uncertainties are enormous within forensic science. Do you agree with that assessment? No. Why not? Because first of all, I'm not sure what uncertainties they're talking about, and I'm not sure how to quantify enormous. That's Kevin Weiner, director of the Kansas City Crime Lab, he spent 25 years as a forensic scientist and is a frequent expert witness in court. We wanted to speak to Kevin, as he is a staunch believer in the reliability of the forensic experts. In fact, he disputes there is any problem with expert testimony at all. Okay. Some of the things that the National Academy of Sciences identified were in inconsistent requirements for training, certification, and accreditation. Do you agree? No, there are clear requirements for accreditation. And the certification requirements are very well documented. Lack of oversight. Lack of oversight has made significant improvements and that was generated through the creation of the committees. And that brought together all the leaders in the field to establish best practices. Nearly every concern we raised to Kevin about the forensic sciences, he shot down. Here's a biggie, inadequate testing and validation of elementary principles. That relates to the needs for research. And absolutely, there's always more need for additional research. As far as the error rates found in various forensic sciences. I don't know those numbers. And the challenge with error rates is the quality assurance measures that are in place at a laboratory are not in place for these studies. 
I mean, that sounds a little bit counterintuitive, so you're challenging the science of the experiments that were used to conclude the error rates in things like fingerprints and... Right. The National Academy of Sciences, they called for a major overhaul in various forensic sciences. Do you think that has occurred within the last 11, 12 years? No, I, I don't think it has occurred, and frankly, I don't think it was absolutely necessary. So far, we've been investigating what appears to be a major problem with forensic expert testimony. Is it really possible that things are just fine the way they are? That this is the best our justice system can do? I looked him dead in the eye and I said, your expert's wrong, you need to get another expert. You have these sciences that are labeled forensic science, but they're theories, they're myths. The trial is dog and pony show. All these people heard was lies. I was horrified. There's nothing a judge can do. There are no standards. There are no qualifications. There is no oversight. Simply because somebody is accepted as an expert doesn't necessarily mean that they know what they're talking about. From Discovery Plus, ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Experts on Trial, a seven-part series that investigates a crisis in the American court system that will leave you hoping you're never accused of a crime that an expert says you committed. During our investigation into expert witness testimony, one of the more shocking things we've found is the enormous uncertainty surrounding the accuracy of many of the forensic fields, especially when one considers the confident manner in which they are asserted in the courts. The situation is so stark that according to many lawyers, judges, and former expert witnesses themselves, some of the forensics need to be discarded entirely, and other fields, while improved, remain alarmingly subjective. However, not everyone agrees. I'll kick this thing off. We'll follow you. So uh, welcome to the Kansas City Police Crime Lab. Thank you for showing us around. In the spring of 2021, Alexis and I traveled to Kansas City to meet with Kevin Weiner, a man who spent decades studying, testing, and testifying to forensic sciences in court. If anyone knows how reliable the various forensic fields actually are, and just how they are portrayed on the stand, it would be him. So this is the laboratory space where the processing takes place. The, the types of forensic science that occur fall into some general categories. One would be biology, which would primarily be DNA evidence. One is trace evidence, which includes arson, fire debris, and materials comparisons. And there's also bloodstain pattern analysis, latent print impression processing, firearms evidence, and so on. And then we have enhanced quality assurance measures in place to ensure that that result is reliable. So, Kevin, what do you say to people who question the reliability of forensic science as a whole? Well, I would say that forensic science is a very important field, and it should be questioned. There's always going to be room for improvement. We're not perfect. Would you say that there's a hierarchy of evidence? You know, you're taking us through all of these rooms. 
When you're getting to DNA, you're talking about, you know, there's a one in a billion percent chance that uh, this isn't the person, that kind of thing. Then, you know, do you go from there to fingerprint and then it goes down and down and down? And uh, I wouldn't say so. I think DNA lends itself to being more statistically driven, whereas other types of evidence really doesn't lean to the statistics that we're fully aware of yet. Many of those are being researched to try to get to that point. They have a lot more variables involved, so I would not give it a hierarchy. So that 2009 report from the National Academy of Sciences that said that a lot of forensic science is unreliable, uh, how do you come to terms with that? They made a lot of different recommendations on what you should be doing. What has changed since then? Well, first I would say that I'm not necessarily convinced that the report is saying that all the forensic science is unreliable, is that there's room for improvement. And I would completely agree. There's no perfect field. And, and I would say that areas of improvement include, you know, more standardization, more research, making sure that we have valid methods and that those methods are applied across the country or the world more uniformly. Now, is there some areas of forensic science that need to have their reliability tested? Absolutely. What's one of those areas? If you could change one thing in forensic science, what would you change? I'm not going to to negatively hit one field. Really? Yeah. That's extremely challenging to, you, you could make a test that's remarkably simpler and the error rate's low. You could make a test that's remarkably complicated and the error rate would be higher. And how do you determine an error rate in a real case? Kevin disputes the error rates that might exist within various forensics and insists that the National Academy of Sciences report overstated the problem. So we move the conversation towards one specific forensic field in the hopes of getting more detail. Moving over to blood spatter, how much of blood spatter analysis is scientific versus subjective? I would say the vast majority of bloodstain pattern analysis is scientific and its foundation is in the physics of the droplet formation, the fluid dynamics of that liquid, the interaction of that liquid with the surface. If it was just looking at the fluid alone, that is very much grounded in science. But in one of these uh, peer-reviewed journals, we were reading it. There are a lot of mistakes, actually. A lot of experts got it wrong. Can you have two blood patterns that look exactly the same, but are from two completely different situations? I wouldn't say exactly the same, but they have enough characteristics that you can't tell them apart. <clears throat> Uh, I would say that, and I'll also say that clothing presents itself as a challenge. So what are the error rates for blood stain analysis on clothing? So um, in 2016, uh, a group of researchers from New Zealand studied the reliability and accuracy of uh, um, specifically determining how blood was deposited on absorbent surfaces like clothing. and. In those studies, it's my recollection that the error rate was approximately 23% of the conclusions or classifications were erroneous. So almost 25% of the time, the analyst got it wrong. In that instance, yes, based upon that study. An error rate of one in four seems to us unacceptable, especially considering the stakes. We've already seen from the stories that we've covered in this series that people like David Cam and Brad Jennings can be convicted based on only a few tiny specks of blood. 
but Kevin remained confident in the field as a whole. So what would you say are the limitations of forensic science? Well, I think the limitations that the public should understand is that forensic science doesn't prove evidence of, prove guilt or innocence, it just provides evidence to the courts and to the triers of fact to, to make that determination. So a limitation is simply that these are just facts and forensic science is accomplished and whatever the results are may or may not support somebody's argument. They are what they are. Forensic science, the stakes are so much higher in some ways because somebody's freedom could hinge on a result. I would agree that how those facts are used in court can definitely affect somebody's livelihood. It can affect whether or not they could be incarcerated. So absolutely the stakes are high. So if we're to say that, how important is it that forensic science is reliable? It's critical. So talking with Kevin, it seemed like he didn't think there was a problem, at least with the science. Really didn't seem to put much weight in that 2009 National Academy of Sciences report that said that there were enormous problems. He wanted to quantify enormous. Yeah, I mean, I get that. As a scientist, it's like, well, what does that mean? And what area are they discussing? We were asking him about the error rates, and he was sort of discounting the error rates. And I think it's just because this is what he does for a living. He's the director of the entire lab, so he has to support the legitimacy of all of the expertise is to a degree. But there's also some things too that he knows are a lot more subjective than others in his in his lab. Sure. He knows that. I also think he believes in it because he practices the science responsibly. Yeah. But not everybody does. There really are two intertwined questions we need to pull apart here. The first is how reliable are the forensic sciences? We just heard Kevin give a vigorous defense of the field as a whole. But considering the things we've discovered in this investigation, we wanted to get another opinion. The other question goes to presentation. How is it that expert witnesses on the stand keep explaining these sciences incorrectly? Thankfully, we found someone who can speak to both of those issues. His name is Jay Kohler, a professor at Northwestern University. Jay is a behavioral scientist who has spent years studying not only the reliability of forensics, but how they are conveyed to everyday people in court. All right, Jay, tell me a little bit about yourself and your fields of expertise. Well, I have a PhD in behavioral sciences, and my primary area of interest, generally speaking, is judgment and decision-making as applied to the law. And even more specific than that, I'm interested in probabilistic reasoning in the law, that is how people think about quantitative evidence in courtroom settings. So this study that you conducted, was it 322 jury eligible Americans and they presented three statements. What were the statements? I asked three questions in that study. One was whether people think that it's been proven that fingerprints are unique. Another question that I asked was whether people believe that uh, DNA analyses err less than one time in a million. And the third question that I asked was whether people believe that we have good data on the accuracy of most forensic sciences. And what I found is that the vast majority of people agreed with all of those statements. But in fact, none of those are true. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from obviously their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Spring is officially in bloom here in the Northern Hemisphere, and with a fresh season underway, you might be seeking your own transformation. For some, that means a new approach to weight loss or nutrition. Noom has a unique approach. Noom is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. It's built to meet you where you are because Noom understands that no two people are the same. Noom stands out to me because it offers a holistic approach to well-being. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself and treat yourself you should. What's more, Noom believes in nourishing rather than restricting. Noom can help you lose weight while still enjoying your favorite foods because this approach is about eating well and treating your body right. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. 
Available to buy now wherever books are sold. We're speaking to Jay Kohler, professor at Northwestern Law School. Jay has spent years studying both the uncertainty behind many forensic sciences and the manner in which they are presented in court. He began by telling us about a survey he conducted on forensics in the courtroom. I presented just ordinary people who uh, log into these internet surveys, questions like, do you think it's been proven that uh, fingerprints are unique? Do you think that the error rate for DNA analysis is less than one in a million? And the third question that I asked was whether people believe that we have good data on the accuracy of most forensic sciences. And what I found is that people have a strong belief in the accuracy of forensic science, and they believe that all of that testing has already been done, but it hasn't been tested. So fingerprints uh, or DNA is not unique? What do you mean? Well, there have been no studies that show that your fingerprint is necessarily unique to you. Uh, in fact, there have been some famous cases where uh, people have mistaken one person's fingerprint for another person's fingerprint. So there is uh, a question of whether forensic scientists, when they're examining fingerprints, can identify uh, your fingerprint with 100% certainty. I myself conducted a study with 125 fingerprint agencies, and we found that the uh, false positive error is approximately 28%. So more than a quarter of the examiners were looking at a pair of prints that did not match, and they said they come from the same person. Wow. I just want to pause here for a second, because I'm sure you're thinking what I'm thinking. We've always been told that our fingerprints are unique, but maybe we don't really know that. And according to this study that Jay himself conducted, there is room for error in fingerprint analysis, just like in any other forensic science. One scientific report came out recently, and what they did in that report is they went through a variety of so-called feature-matching forensic sciences, things like tire tracks and shoe prints, and where there's some subjective judgment from the examiner, and they found, in general, that the feature-matching forensic sciences just didn't have very much in the way of empirical studies. And what about DNA? DNA, we simply don't know the rates of error. When two DNA samples are not from the same source, how often will ex an examiner mistakenly think they were from the same source? That's the false positive error rate. That's what we need data on, and that's what we don't have data on. Even DNA testing is subject to examiners making errors. We just don't know. What's stopping that test from being done? I would say a willingness uh, within the forensic science community to participate in those tests. Right now, they have very little incentive because their testimony is generally accepted at trial. Their testimony is given a lot of weight at trial. So there's, there's a variety of reasons they aren't conducted, and they might also yield bad news. They might also show that in certain subfields of forensic science, the error rates are intolerably high. What's, what are some of those subfields? The uh, three areas that I think most people think the forensic scientists will perform less well at are bite mark analysis, conventional hair analysis, and handwriting analysis. What about blood spatter? You know, blood spatter, 
like most of the forensic sciences, probably has something useful to say. But here again, we don't know error rates. We need to do blind proficiency testing where we know exactly what angle the gun was at when it was fired at the target and see how well the examiners do. What's the rate of error that we've seen for firearms? I think it's dangerous to get too precise about it, but the rate at which an examiner would say, for example, this bullet came from this gun, when in fact the bullet came from a different gun. Might be one in a hundred, it might be two in a hundred, but something on that order. So they're pretty good, but what we want to know is the conditions under which an examiner is more and less likely to make that sort of false positive error. Do you think it's shocking that nothing has been done about this? From a scientific standpoint, yes, it's shocking because science, you know, the nature of science is to test and to identify error rates and to try to improve in this way and to repeat testing. But on the other hand, it's not shocking because nobody is there to hold the forensic scientist's feet to the fire. No one is there to hold the forensic scientist's feet to the fire. And this is the crux of the problem. The average citizen, how much should they worry about this situation? Well, obviously they should worry a lot because with two errors a jury can make, they can fail to convict a guilty person or they can convict a, an innocent person. The stakes are very high and I think it's very dangerous to rely solely on assurances from the forensic scientists themselves that they are testifying from an accredited laboratory, that they themselves are certified, that they themselves are highly experienced, and that they themselves are very confident in their conclusions. Because we still have the problem of the jurors not knowing how much weight to put on those opinions because they don't know how accurate the opinions have been shown to be in controlled testing situations. Jay's description of the confidence of forensic scientists reminds us of our conversation with the director of Kansas City Crime Lab, Kevin Weiner. Kevin spoke repeatedly about his lab's accreditation and strict certification protocols, as well as the confidence he has in his personal conclusions whenever he takes the stand. Of course, that's all very admirable. You can tell when speaking with Kevin that he and everyone in his lab take the science extremely seriously. However, according to Jay, every expert witness has common biases and psychological blind spots that they bring with them into court. How does bias play in the courtroom? Well, for example, a sophisticated group examined hair testimony provided by the FBI prior to the year 2000 in hundreds of cases, which typically led to convictions, by the way. What they found was that testimony was often exaggerated or simply misstated. Uh, so when you actually look carefully at what the examiner said, they went far beyond the science. These are FBI examiners. I mean, they're your best examiners. And what this study found was that they exaggerated or misstated the evidence 95% of the time. Wow. In other words, almost every time, they were saying something about the hair evidence that was too favorable to the prosecution. And in most of those cases did lead to convictions. And some of those, by the way, were death penalty cases. So again, these are FBI examiners. So I mean, they're your best examiners. Do you think if the juror hears testimony from somebody who's world-renowned, who's been in these large cases, do you think they're more apt to believe them? I do. I do think the credibility of the source 
weighs very heavily with jurors because it's very difficult for jurors to do what we would like them to do, and that is think about the underlying data that supports the testimony they're hearing. So our heuristic brains, you know, our tendency to substitute an easy question for a hard question. The hard question is, what's the reliability of this testimony that I just heard? The easy question is, who's got the better training and education? I can assess that, anybody can assess that. And so if we make judgments about the validity of the information we've gotten, based on the credibility of the source, based on how fancy their schools are, that's a problem. So what have your studies showed about how much weight was placed on experts' testimony? Jurors, they want to hear from the expert. They want the expert's opinion. You know, is that his fingerprint or not? Did that tire track come from this car or not? And the fact is, the science does not support those kind of source claims. So when experts say, we found a number of points of consistency between this hair and other hairs on Billy's head. That's fine, that's a reasonable statement, but that's also not very compelling to jurors. But if the expert comes right out and says, in my opinion, this hair came from Billy's head, now they give it a lot of weight and they think it really did come from your head. And they will tend to convict in a case like that. Jay is essentially saying that people are instinctually inclined to want easy answers and our experts are instinctually inclined to provide them. So what happens when you throw other incentives, like money, into that situation? The fact is, many of the experts whose testimony contributed to the wrongful convictions we've covered in this series, they were extremely well paid. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. For us, it's been kind of the elephant in the room. Surely that type of perverse incentive has to have an effect. When your employer is telling you, we've got this case, here's the evidence, tell us what we want to hear. Does that bias come into play? It's not just because it's for pay, not just because they're giving you money and you're afraid they're not going to give you money if you don't give the right answer. It's just that it's an unfortunate human condition. People have an affinity towards the people that they're teamed up with. And so if you and I are on the same team, I want to please you. I might not say that out loud. I might not say, you know, I'm looking for any way I can help Billy here. But my natural inclination to want to help you could influence the way I think about the evidence. And if the opposite side hired me, the opposite might happen. And if you ask me, are you doing anything consciously to please the, you know, your side? I would say, no, of course not. I'm just being an unbiased scientist. But many studies have shown that scientists are biased by not only the sides that hire them, but by prior inf contextual information they have about a case. If the forensic scientist knows, and I put it in quotation mark, knows that the suspect is guilty because he or she is aware of some other non-forensic evidence in the case that points to guilt, when they're looking at the fingerprints, they may see points of similarity that they wouldn't otherwise see. So that's an example of cognitive bias operating on the examiner. We wanted to ask an expert witness what he thought about biased expert testimony in the courts. So we returned to the Kansas Crime Lab to speak with Kevin Weiner. We've learned that most expert witnesses are either consciously or unconsciously biased towards the side that hires them. 
So we wanted to hear Kansas City Crime Lab Chief Kevin Weiner's thoughts about how that might affect the testimony of he and his fellow expert witnesses. You're being hired, some of these experts are being hired by the defense, uh, some of them by the prosecution, and making hundreds of thousands of dollars for their testimony. Is there an intrinsic bias there that they might lean towards a specific conclusion because that's who's paying them? I would hope not. You'd hope not, but do you think money inherently is a motivator for some people, just by the very nature of it? I suspect so. Do you ever have a, a prosecutor saying, I want you to say one thing, and when you're looking at it, you're just like, I can't say that because that's, this is all I'm finding here. Yes, I would say both sides will try to test the limits. The limits of your testimony and the limits of the science. But when you are hired specifically to consult on a case, if you don't give the answer that whatever side is hoping for, they won't hire you. Well, I make that very clear straight up. I'm, I'm gonna tell you like it is. I'm gonna issue a report like it is. And that's the way it is. Now, is there situations that occur elsewhere in this country? That's potentially the case, but I have not been personally involved with them. But there are some bad experts. What I don't want is to, for the few to represent the entire forensic science community or a specific discipline. So how do you think juries are supposed to evaluate expert testimony when we have dueling experts with similar qualifications who are arguing completely different theories about evidence? I will definitely say that the jury's responsibility is great and their task is challenging. But as somebody with a scientific background, only one can be right, right? They're arguing completely opposing views. Somebody is 100% wrong. Potentially, and you know, there's some instances where there's not enough information to form a conclusion one way or the other. And um, in those instances, I think it's also the responsibility of the forensic scientist to say either inconclusive or I don't know. Sometimes that is the best answer. And do you think people are afraid to give the I don't know answers? You know, people might feel like they're not an expert if they don't have an opinion, when in fact, when you say I don't know, or you cannot tell, or there's not enough evidence to support one or the other, that is a valid opinion. Here's the problem though. In every one of the cases we've covered in this series, from David Cam to Bill Richards, to Joanne Parks, the experts willing to say, I don't know, weren't necessarily the ones chosen to take the stand. The results of that quirk of our legal system has led to a whole lot of pain and tragedy. Here's exonerated former Indiana State Trooper David Cam. What are your thoughts on the forensic experts in the courtroom? Here's how I see it. Could there potentially be a place for forensic experts in the courtroom? Yes, I think that there could be, okay? But what needs to happen is Everyone that's a member of those communities need to acknowledge that there are other individuals out there that are doing not only the same thing that they're doing, but they're taking way too far. Bloodstain pattern analyst slash crime scene reconstructionist. You know, I'm sorry, you just can't answer every question. And when you've got some magician 
that's just uh, from A to Z filling every blank, that's just not possible. And it's the showmanship and the unprofessionalism and not sticking to the science. It's all about the science. And that's where it gets lost. They're given such power. They have the ability and the opportunity, sometimes not justifiably so, to take life. And, you know, as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. Billy and I feel like we are finally understanding the depth and scope of the problem with expert testimony. The next question is, how do we fix it? Next on Unraveled, Experts on Trial. The way I described it once in one of the decisions I wrote, it was grandfathering in irrationality. For everyone who gets exonerated, there's probably 100 innocent people in prison. What is it going to take to fix the issue? The courts are going to need to say, we will not admit this evidence until you show me the data. Conduct the relevant studies. Prosecutors have to understand that they have a responsibility not just to convict, but also to do justice. And if the forensic evidence is problematic, then they should not use it. We're up against a system where the prosecution has the upper hand, and it's a win-at-all-cost mentality and monetary motivations. People don't want the business of experts to go away. It's so big and it's so messed up. Law enforcement, prosecutors, the government needs to put into place some checks and balances. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Kuntz, along with myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing by Mike Gattinella. Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimbo Libraries. Make sure to check for our final episode next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.